Hey everyone, and welcome to Murder and Mysteries with Megan. If you are new here, welcome. And if you're not new here, welcome back. I'm grateful for each and every one of you that are here today with me. If you are new here, make sure to hit that subscribe button and that post notification bell so that you don't miss another one of my uploads in the near future. Today's video, we're gonna talk about four different missing persons cases. The purpose of today's video is to bring to light these missing persons and to share their information and their photographs with others so that maybe we can get the word out there and do our part in trying to bring in more information for these people so that maybe their families can one day have answers and potentially bring their lost loved ones home. Without further ado, let's get into today's video. The first case that we're going to talk about today is one of a girl named Michaela Bali. Michaela Bali was 16 years old when she went missing on April 12th of 2016 from Yorktown, Saskatchewan, Canada. Michaela lived in Yorktown. She was described by those that she knew as being caring, thoughtful, a bit shy, and she also loved music. The day before her disappearance on April 11th, she went out to lunch with a couple of her girlfriends and the conversations that they had that day, Michaela mentioned wanting to go on a trip with her family to Regina and that that was upcoming and they had plans to do this. She also mentioned two different guys, a guy named Josh and also a guy named Christopher. Now, when asked more information about Josh, her friends state that she didn't want to divulge much or seem to even really want to talk about Josh. However, Christopher, it was mentioned, was going to come and meet her and her family in Saskatchewan while they were on vacation. After lunch, the three friends decided to go back to school and back to classes for the rest of the day. However, it seemed that according to Michaela's teacher, Michaela seemed quite upset in class and they weren't quite sure why she was that day. That afternoon, Michaela actually messaged a friend of hers, Oksana, one of the girls that she had gone to lunch with, and asked if she would take her to the bank the following day that she needed to go and it was really important. Between 5.30 and 6 p.m. that day, Michaela transferred $25 to her bank account. After checking the bank account balance, three different times by calling customer service. Later that evening, Michaela messaged an ex of hers, a friend named Amy Lang, and also messaged Oksana as well. When she messaged these three people, they said three different things. She told her friend Amy that she needed help, but when Amy asked what it was for, she didn't answer and she texted her ex stating that she was unhappy and thinking of going to Regina for a vacation. She then texted Oksana was about a guy saying that she felt bad and she was crying and upset. Now the next day her family says that nothing seemed to be amiss as Michaela's getting up and getting ready for school. They then pile in the car between Michaela, her mother, and her grandmother and take her mother to work and Michaela on to school. They said everything seemed like quite an ordinary day. However, Michaela's actions on that day were anything but ordinary. 
That morning, she messaged Oksana again at 6.41 a.m. before arriving at school, asking again if she could take her to the bank. Oksana replied to her and said, well, the bank's not open. How can I take you to the bank? And that was the end of the conversation through text. After she arrived at school, her grandmother, Margaret Niebergall, told RCMP that she had dropped Michaela at Sacred Heart High School at approximately between 8.10 and 8.20 a.m. Now, that is corroborated by Michaela actually connecting to the Wi-Fi signal and being caught on security cameras as she entered the high school and went to her locker. At around 8.20 a.m. that morning, she puts her binder in her locker and then left through the back entrance of the school at approximately 8.26 a.m. It appears that Michaela decided to go to the bank on her own that morning. Um, she's seen by security cameras in the Super C convenience store parking lot and arriving at TD Bank before they even opened that morning. On TD Bank's security cameras, when Michaela got there, she was on a phone call between 8.51 and 8.55 that morning until a teller opened up and allowed her to take care of her business that she needed to. However, when you look at Michaela's phone records, we cannot see who it was that she was speaking with or even that a call took place. This actually led police to believe that her phone calls that took place on this morning were done through some sort of phone app or text messaging app or even through social media apps. At the bank, Michaela then withdraws $55 and walks down the street to Terry's Pawn and Bargain. Um, at around 9 a.m., she arrives and she asks the value of a silver ring of hers. It didn't seem that the pawn shop owner was very interested in this ring and he did not offer any money due to the value. When interviewed, the pawn shop owner stated that um, she didn't seem upset whenever he didn't offer her any money for the ring, that she actually just turned around and walked back out. Through security camera footage, we can actually see that she starts heading south towards a Tim Horton slash Wendy's combination restaurant. Here, Michaela sits in a booth with her drink, her cell phone, and a backpack in hand, where she sits from about 9.10 to 9.23 a.m. She's talking on the phone. She's looking around. It even appears at one point that she's taking apart her cell phone and then putting it back in. Some people theorize that it may be that she had two different SIM cards and she was putting a different one in her cell phone and that's why they couldn't track her phone records that day. At 9.23 a.m., Michaela then leaves the restaurant through one exit, turns back around, comes back into the restaurant and exits through another door. This time, heading in the opposite direction. She passes home hardware where the surveillance camera caught her until she was out of frame. It wasn't until 9.42 a.m. that Michaela actually reappeared on camera coming from behind a giant tiger store. She then heads back into Tim Hortons while she has her phone up to her ear, apparently making another call. Yet again, there's no record of this call either. 
This time, Michaela sits in a different booth, and she sits at one closer to a window facing towards the door instead of facing away from it. For the next 10 minutes, she sits in the booth, she looks around, she's on the phone. It's almost as if she was looking for someone. At 10, 12 a.m., she sends another message to her friend Shelby saying, hey, I need help. Shelby didn't respond immediately and 30 minutes later, another message follows. Never mind, I figured it out. Again, Michaela stands up, leaves the restaurant, only to return less than two minutes later and sit back down again in the same booth. At 10.39 a.m., there was another unidentifiable phone call. She looks around and then three minutes later, she's off the phone. She gets up, she approaches an older lady, and according to interviews with this woman, asks if she can help her rent a hotel room for the night. The lady ends up declining and Michaela goes back to her booth. Unfortunately, according to interviews with the older lady, she states that Michaela never mentioned what hotel that she was planning on renting a room for the night at. Again, another call appears to have come through on Michaela's phone as she gets up. She leaves the restaurant. By this time, it's 11.35 a.m. And Michaela sends her friend Shelby a text saying, I'll see you at lunch. By 11.59, Michaela was right back at school and reportedly was speaking to two students inside saying that she was going to take a bus, go to Regina, and go on vacation. Reportedly, after speaking with the students, they state that she may have had two cell phones when they were talking to her. At about 12.02 p.m. on April 12th, surveillance cameras at the school show Michaela walking back out of the school. There were then eyewitness accounts later that day stating that she had come to the trail stop restaurant where she got poutine to eat. She then went to the bus terminal and asked about buying a ticket to Regina. It wasn't until 5 p.m. and leaving until then, and she declined to buy one. She then left about 1.45 p.m. All of this happening within the hours of school. That was the last time that reportedly anyone had seen Michaela Bali. At 3.40 p.m. that afternoon, Michaela's grandmother went back to school to pick her up. Of course, she wasn't there. Her grandmother thought, well, she'd been practicing the violin for an upcoming recital and maybe she had just gone early to her lesson. Finally, at 8 p.m. that evening, Paula Bali, Michaela's mother, reported her missing. 7 a.m. the next morning, Michaela Bali's cell phone was turned off. After interviewing friends, GIS officers found out that Michaela did communicate with people on apps such as Snapchat, Instagram, and even an app called Kick. There's been no activity on her social media accounts, except for there's a profile on Instagram with her name. However, there are no pictures, but there are hundreds of followers.
in the Instagram account profile, the About Me section, all it says is one word, goodbye. There have also been reports that friends have sent Snapchat messages and only to have them opened three months later, whether by Michaela or someone else. Now, it wasn't until August of 2019 that a promising lead came in. A man had contacted Michaela's mom, stating that he had actually seen Michaela back in March of 2019. Unfortunately, it took him six months to let her know that he had seen Michaela because he actually did not know that she was missing in the first place. So, of course, six months had passed since he had seen her, and unfortunately, there was just nothing that could lead them to more answers for Michaela Bali. Police ended up investigating over 600 different tips and leads. However, none have been able to give the family any answers or lead to Michaela's whereabouts. If you or someone you know has information on the missing Michaela Bali, please contact 306-641-9436. The second case we're going to talk about today is one of Tammy Kingry. She was 37 years old when she went missing on September 20th of 2014 from Edgefield County, South Carolina. She was said to have been nice, kind, and well-behaved as she grew up as a child. And those characteristics followed her into adulthood. In the mid-1990s, Tammy met her husband, Park, at a local drugstore where they both worked. The two of them ended up dating, got engaged September 20th of 1994, and were married shortly after. The two of them had three children together. Caitlin, who was born in 1999, Carter was born in 2001, and Cameron was born shortly after the couple had finished building a new family home in Edgefield County, South Carolina, around 2007. By this time, Tammy had finished school as a nurse, and she had begun a job at NCH Healthcare Nursing Home, where she was still employed at the time of her disappearance in 2014. Now on the morning of September 20th of 2014, 37-year-old Tammy Kingry went to her shift at work around 7 a.m. Not long after, she called her husband, said she wasn't feeling well and that she wanted to come home. People at her job actually reported that she seemed quite agitated that day, um, that she was on edge, that she had taken her blood pressure around four times and it was quite high, that everyone was trying to calm her down and ease her nerves. This was all very uncharacteristic of Tammy. Now these mood swings and her feeling bad was not something that seemed to have come on out of the blue. According to her sisters, Becky and Amy, she'd been complaining for the past four nights of waking up in the middle of the night with night sweats so bad that she would have to go and change her clothing in the middle of the night. She had also, you know, assured her sisters that she was going to go to the doctor and get checked out and that she actually had an appointment upcoming soon. Her husband also later mentions that Tammy hadn't been feeling well for about two weeks, that she would come straight home from work and go to bed. This was all leading up to this particular day. 
Now, shortly after Tammy called her husband, she said that she wanted to go home. He arrived at her job, picked her up, and she left her vehicle there. They headed on home. Tammy went upstairs, changed clothes, and laid down. Now, around 10 a.m. that morning, Park went into the bedroom where Tammy was resting and told her that he was going to take the kids out of the house and let her get some rest. He was going to run some errands and that they would be back in a couple of hours. And he just wanted to check on her before he left. He gave her a kiss on the forehead and they left. For the next two hours, the three of them are gone from the house. They actually ran their errands, mowed the yard. Then Park goes, picks up Carter, and they return home. They get home about noon that afternoon. And when they get there, everything is eerily quiet. They go and they check on Tammy and she's not in the living room. They check the rest of the house and they can't seem to find her anywhere. The only thing that they find is a letter on the kitchen table with these words. Went for a walk. Be back soon. Love you. That was it. Immediately, Park felt that something was off. The Where they lived was not somewhere that had a bunch of walking trails and things like that, that it would be typical for Tammy to go on a walk. And another thing that made the note very strange is normally whenever Tammy needed to tell Park something, she would actually send it to him in a text message like many of us would. Another thing that was strange was that her phone, her purse, her keys, her money, everything was still at the house, but Tammy was gone. Park jumped in his car called his daughter, Caitlin, and asked her to join in their search efforts to try to find Tammy and where she had gone. He also called his mother-in-law and told her that Tammy was missing and she headed to the Kingry home right away. By 2 p.m., the search for Tammy had not given Park, her mother, or her children any answers as to where Tammy had gone, and they called 911. Upon arrival, the sheriff's department looked inside and outside of the home for any signs of Tammy. They didn't find anything out of place to implicate foul play. They even called in tracker dogs to let them smell her scrubs, and they found nothing. The state was then contacted and brought in a helicopter to be able to help search from above, while 20 to 25 officers searched on foot in the area surrounding the home. The police and family checked the area around the home, the woods, the main roads, security cameras, possible sightings. But as the day came to a close, so did the search for Tammy. That evening, Tammy's 16-year-old daughter, Caitlin, who had been out searching for her mother, stated that while she was out looking, she saw a motorcycle pass by on a road near their house. But the thing that made this strange is that the person on the back of the motorcycle appeared as though it was Tammy. By the time that they turned around and started looking for the motorcycle, it had disappeared either off a side road or had turned off somewhere where they couldn't find them. 
What made this report even stranger is the fact that a neighbor had reported hearing a loud exhaust coming from the direction of the Kingry home between 10.30 and 11 a.m. that morning. After the disappearance, Tammy's friends and family passed out flyers. Family and the community came together and searched a 10-mile radius of the home. Now, during this search, a foul odor was coming from a black trash bag that some of the searchers found. However, upon investigation by the police officers, it wasn't Tammy that they found. It was dog remains. Police didn't believe that this had any kind of connection to Tammy going missing. Now, later in some interviews with Tammy's husband, it was revealed that Tammy was diagnosed recently with mild to moderate depression and that she'd been having a really, really difficult time the last couple of weeks. He also mentions that Tammy at one point in time had tried to commit suicide. During the investigation, police officers found that Tammy and Park's relationship wasn't as good as what it appeared to be from the outside. Turns out that Tammy had a couple different message threads that had been deleted on her cell phone. These two different threads were from two different individual men who Tammy had been messaging romantically. Parks even admitted that Tammy had had an affair once before and the couple had even talked about divorce. After finding out about the text messages with different men, the affair, and the potential impending divorce, police officers decided to take a closer look at Park. Park ended up taking a polygraph test where the police officers actually stated that they didn't want to divulge that information. However, in an interview with Park, um, he stated that the police had told him that the results were questionable. Um, upon further digging, however, police officers corroborated where Park was on the day of his wife's disappearance by receipts and cell phone tower pings. Tammy's family believes that she would never just leave her children. They state that her children are her life and there's no way that she would just want to leave them. They have asked that surrounding areas and bodies of water be checked in the investigation for Tammy to try to find some evidence. So far, nothing has given any kind of evidence or any tips or leads as to where Tammy Kingry is today. So was this a case of an abduction potentially during her walk? Was this foul play or did she run away with another man? Regardless of the reason for her disappearance, her family is still looking for answers. They're searching for a mother, a sister, a daughter, and a friend. If you or someone you know has any information or tips on the whereabouts of Tammy Kingry, please contact Edgefield Sheriff's Department at 803-637-5337. The third case that we're going to talk about today is one of Logan Schindelman. He was 19 years old when he disappeared on May 19, 2016 from Tumwater, Washington. Logan was described as being warm, welcoming, kind-hearted, and was a defensive back on his high school football team. His dad was from Saudi Arabia and his mom was African-American and Caucasian. 
Logan grew up with his half-sister and with his grandmother, Jenny. He didn't really have a chance to get to know his father since he had moved back to Saudi Arabia when Logan was just a little boy. His mother lived not far from him. However, with her career aspirations, that took a lot of her attention away from him and his half-sister as they grew up. As a result, Logan never really knew his family, including the African-American side of his family or his heritage that was so incredibly important to a young man trying to find his way in life. It seems as though Logan was trying to find out more about his family and his heritage. In fact, Logan's family members stated that when they met with Logan in secret, that he had mentioned that if his grandmother Jenny had ever found out that he met with them, that she would be upset. However, when asked in an interview, Jenny states that she doesn't believe this to be true and that she had just not spoken to that side of the family in a really long time. And so there was just no connection of the two. I showed him a picture of his grandfather, my older brother, and he stared at it. He said, it's, he goes, it feels good to see someone that looks like me. He wanted some answers and he wasn't getting them at home. If she finds out that I came here, she's gonna be really mad. I don't think that's true either. They made no effort to get home and see him. And I had pretty much not talked to his father, his grandfather, in years and years and years. So there was just no connection. Another thing going on in the young man's life was mentioned by his grandmother. It was said that Logan had a group of friends and that he had attended a party with them around the time of his high school graduation. That at this party, someone had said some really racist comments to him. And instead of sticking up for him, his friends just kind of sat back and did nothing. With everything going on in Logan's life, his stint in college did not last long. With trying to navigate his future, being in a new place, not having many friends, and having a difficult time making friends while he was at college, according to his uncle, Logan only spent one year at Washington State University before returning home to Tumwater, Washington, back to his grandmother's house. While he was living with his grandmother, it wasn't just him and his half-sister anymore. She had moved in her boyfriend. Now, the issue with this is the fact that Logan and the boyfriend did not get along at all. In fact, there were even some physical altercations that were reported. It was said that when Logan returned home from college, that he continued to be more and more withdrawn and staying in his room more and more by himself. His family members mentioned that he'd been smoking a lot of marijuana and had become increasingly paranoid during this time. Now on the morning of May 19, 2016, he spoke with Jenny and told her that he had had an epiphany of sorts and he wanted to sit down and speak with his grandmother about it. His grandmother Jenny then replied and said that she would sit down with him after she had returned from work that day and just to keep it in his mind. He never returned. That was the last time that his grandmother spoke with him. On May 20th around 11 a.m. Jenny stated that he still wasn't home and she was kind of getting worried by this point. So she decided to ping his cell phone. 
when she did this, she saw that he was close by to where his mother lived in Olympia and thought maybe he had just gone to visit with her. Thinking that Logan was just visiting with his mother, his grandmother went about her daily business. May 22nd, Logan still hasn't returned home to his grandmother's house. However, when Jenny tries to go file a missing persons report, there were some issues and she wasn't able to. So the following day on May 23rd, they finally are able to put a missing persons report out on Logan Schindelman. When they finally are able to put out the missing persons report on Logan, his car ends up getting flagged for being involved in another incident. We later find out that during the time that Logan was out driving around when he had called his grandmother to report his epiphany, um, that he was driving on I-5. 911 ended up getting phone calls that day reporting of reckless driving on I-5 and of Logan's vehicle swerving in and out of traffic, first going northbound, then southbound, then northbound again, until his vehicle came to a stop where it was abandoned, right next to the median. One of the 911 calls that came in during that time had been from a truck driver. Um, he had been driving behind Logan's black Chrysler convertible. His account to 911 on that day was that as the vehicle was driving and drifting towards the center of the road, that a six foot white male jumped out of the passenger side of the vehicle and ran into the woods. Later that same evening, Dispatchers received reports of a naked black male running and being sighted in the area. Um, police then decided to investigate the area and see if potentially there were any signs of Logan. There was one household during the search that actually denied searching their property, whether it was related or not. Desperate searches for clues and answers continued, even searching within a two-mile radius of the abandoned car with canine units and still nothing was found to lead investigators to Logan. At this point in time, Thurston's Frank Frawley was actually assigned to the case. They searched Logan's vehicle where they found his cell phone, wallet, and even a grocery bag of snacks sitting on the dashboard. However, there were still no signs of Logan or his whereabouts. His grandmother, Jenny, then gave permission for investigators to search his bedroom, his cell phone, and his computer to see if there were any potential answers. Still nothing. However, what his cell phone records did show was this. When the police officers checked his cell phone records, they found out that on the day of Logan's disappearance, his phone started out sitting near Steel Street. It then was tracked to Portland for 45 minutes. From there, it started showing traveling back and forth radically on I-5, where it was finally found abandoned. Some other clues and potential eyewitness accounts have happened since. A week after Logan's disappearance, it appears that his Facebook account was accessed and a check-in was made at Olympia Regional Airport. I mean, who is on his account? 
did Logan log in from the airport on another device and report his check-in? Was this something that was to lead investigators to think that he had just run away? Was this someone that had access to his cell phone after it had been gone through? The community also continued working together, trying to aid and help the family and trying to find any kind of clues or information leading to Logan coming home. They even raised $10,000, held vigils, and passed out flyers to locals and others. They even had billboards put up around I-5 to alert passerbyers to Logan being missing. One other eyewitness account from that day on I-5 was later released, and it was said that Logan was seen with two white males by the side of the road where his car was found abandoned. That one was approximately six foot tall with straight blonde hair. He was wearing a white tank top and high water jeans. A sketch was actually released of this potential person of interest. Um, the other person that was said to have been seen with Logan, there wasn't quite as much information given on this particular man. Um, a white male and that he was wearing a flannel shirt. And that's about all the information that we get. What happened to Logan Schindelman on the day that he disappeared almost five years ago now? Did he just then take off and never look back? Or did these two men that eyewitness accounts give us have something to do with his disappearance? Whatever happened on that fateful day, Logan's family just want to know that he's okay. They state that they just want Logan to know that they love him, they miss him, and that he's always welcome back home. The last time that Logan was seen, he was wearing blue jeans and a white shirt. He was 19 years old, approximately 150 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, and he had a scar just above his left elbow. Logan also had an allergy to peanuts and didn't have his EpiPen with him on the day of his disappearance. If you or someone you know may have information on the whereabouts of Logan, please contact Thurston County at 360-704-2740. Our fourth and final missing persons case of the day is about a young girl named Pearl Pinson. Pearl Pinson was 15 years old when she went missing on May 25th of 2016 from Vallejo, California. Pearl Pinson was born on December 15th of the year 2000. She was born to her parents, James and Joyce. She was described by friends and family to be happy, sweet, and smart with a big heart. However, despite her big heart, she was also known to speak her mind. She had even spoke of wanting to become a veterinarian because she loved animals or even becoming a firefighter. The morning of May 25th seemed to start out like any other for Pearl Pinson as she began her approximately 15-minute walk to her school, Jesse M. Bethel High School. As she made her way towards the school, she had to walk over a pedestrian overpass. At approximately 7 a.m., she reached the overpass, and reports began trickling in of a white young female with a teal and black backpack 
arguing with a man who appeared to be Hispanic. Reports would reveal that the girl had been bloody and had been screaming for help. One passerby reportedly tried to help. However, when they did, the man pointed the gun at them. One person even mentioned that they thought that the girl had been shot prior to being abducted. Witnesses then state that she was pushed into a 1999 gold four-door Saturn by this young Hispanic male. When police arrived at the scene, they found blood spatter and the cell phone that belonged to Pearl. It was revealed later that the man who witnesses had seen was a young man, 19 years old, named Fernando Castro. Now, during the police officer's attempt to find out more about Fernando, some people had theorized that maybe Fernando and Pearl had been in a relationship together. See, Fernando only lived less than a mile away from where Pearl's family lived. Her family states that they had heard his name in passing. However, they didn't think that there was a romantic relationship or that they had been dating. During the investigation, um, police officers actually found that the two were not just acquaintances. However, there was nothing in these messages that indicated that they were more. They actually found messages between the two over social media. The following day, police actually put out an Amber Alert on Pearl. Um, after her disappearance, witnesses and tips started coming through and stating that they had seen Fernando Castro approximately four hours from where the abduction had taken place. Now, finally, the police were able to catch up to Fernando to try to find out where Pearl was and ask questions and bring him in. However, as the police started to get closer to Castro, Castro decided he was going to take an exit. He exited into a more residential area called Solving. Um, this was approximately 300 miles from where Pearl was last seen with him. After Castro had exited the interstate, he actually crashed his vehicle and decided to run into a nearby mobile home. There was actually a woman inside of the mobile home at this time. She luckily was not harmed. And as he comes back out of the mobile home and tries to steal a truck, police officers and Fernando Castro got into a shootout. During this shootout, Fernando was actually shot and killed. After Castro had been shot and killed, police officers were able to apprehend his vehicle. Inside of his vehicle, they had found trace amounts of blood inside of the trunk. However, according to Officer Castillo at the Solano Sheriff's Department, they state, The trace of blood we found in the trunk of the car is consistent with whatever injury she had when she was abducted. But it wasn't a significant enough amount of blood to indicate that it wasn't survivable. Investigators started digging into his past. What was strange is that Castro had nothing in his past. He had no criminal background. He had no drug history. There was no criminal activity whatsoever. They then searched Castro's home and found receipts from Jenner. Now, this is approximately one and a half hours away from Vallejo, California, where 
Pearl had initially gone missing. Police initially thought that maybe he had taken her to Jenner. However, no evidence or information was even found that led police to know whether or not Pearl was there or that she had even been murdered by Castro or if she was just missing. Now, with all of this information from the receipts and everything showing where Castro had been the day after Pearl had gone missing, police officers had a huge area to search. Searches were done in the area. Searches were done in the Willow Creek area of Jenner. All of these searches were to no avail. They did not bring or shed any light as to where Pearl Pinson had disappeared to. As time passed, family tried to keep her picture out there and passed out flyers and even offered a $10,000 reward. However, Pearl Pinson is still missing to this day. Do you think that Fernando and Pearl knew each other prior to May 25th? Do you think that they were potentially in a relationship? Or was this just more of a heat of the moment type of abduction? Maybe even still, had he been stalking her? and this was just the most opportune time to take her? Did he pass her off to someone else where she is potentially being held captive? Or was it potentially human trafficking? Unfortunately, all of these questions that so many have are still unanswered. Pearl was last seen wearing a black and white zip-up hoodie, a gray sweatshirt, pink Nike shoes, black pants, and a black Raiders beanie. At the time of her disappearance, she was 15 years of age, and today she would be 20. She was approximately five foot three, 130 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had a lip ring and she even had her hair dyed green. If you or anyone you know has any information on the whereabouts or any tips regarding Pearl Pinson, please contact the Solano County Sheriff's tip line at 707-421-7090. Well, everyone, that concludes today's video. I wanted to cover some missing person cases over the last 10 years in order to help share their stories and get their information and their photos out there as much as possible so that maybe someday their families will get some answers and maybe, just maybe, they can finally bring their loved ones home. Thank you for watching and being here today. For more videos like this and any other upcoming videos, make sure to hit that subscribe button and post notification bell. And please make sure to give this video a thumbs up to help others see this video too. Until next time, my mystery lovers. Bye.